Hello everyone and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. For those of you that are new here, I'm your host Ethan Bridge and I just want to start off this episode by saying thank you all for joining. There is more to a person than just their accomplishments. There is a journey. With social media nowadays, we're often misled by those that we follow. We need to remember what we see is a highlight reel and a highlight reel only. We see a snapshot of the moment, a fraction of the full story. Every entrepreneur has a dream, a set of goals in which they're setting out to accomplish, and they each have their own set of values in which they should never forget. Matt Gagnon, today's guest on the show, believes in living a life aligned with your values. We all have up to five core values that, when honoured, evoke the best in us. However, the problem is that many people live life with values defined by others, leaving one feeling empty and like they are never enough. These values defined by others cause us to become fixated on the things that do make us feel whole and good about ourselves. It's addiction. Matt first discovered this when he became addicted to praise, not drugs or alcohol or the things that people most commonly associate to addiction, but praise. And for 15 years, Matt sold himself to the corporate lifestyle. Sold himself to the point in which he had to go on medical leave with several severe and life-threatening health issues. Matt wasn't set up in the perfect position to pursue self-employment. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He barely had the energy to work 40-hour months, let alone 40-hour weeks. But it's incredible what you can achieve when your back is up against the wall. Matt is an extremely motivating individual with an incredibly interesting story which I can't wait for you all to hear. So, without any further ado, let's dive straight into the episode. Enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. I am super excited for today's episode because we have Matt Gagnon on the show. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Not too bad for a global pandemic, I'd say. No, we're pushing through. We're pushing through. Sounds like you've had it a bit harder your end personally than I have, but we'll get through it. We'll get through it. Yeah, we will. So for the listeners that don't know who you are, can you just give us this quick 60-second introduction of who you are and what you do, please? Yeah. I'm a husband and a father, and I am someone who believes in comeback stories. It's never too late to write your own, that's for sure. I believe in breaking unspoken rules in society, on social media. I believe in being a voice for those who can't speak and for the mental health, you know, um, you know, industry, just the mental health community. And, um, you know, I love being able to serve people and being that voice of sharing vulnerability and showing the strength in it. Amazing. That has to be one of the best introductions I've probably had. Not just sort of, I do this. I do that. So if you've got purpose behind it, so great well, stuff. I, I think it should be more about who you are than what you mm. do. Because everybody loves to ask that. What do you do? Exactly. That's why I say who you are and what you do. Yeah. I love that. Two birds, one stone. So the way I like to start all my episodes is to throw it back with my guests and talk to them about their time at school. So let's focus on a 14 year old version of yourself. Mm. How were you at that age? Were you the class clown? Were you bang average? Or were you a straight A student? Uh, none of that. Let's see. <laughs> so what um, were you at, at, at 14, uh, gosh, that was probably seventh grade. 
And that was probably like one of the worst years ever. Like it's junior high. It's such a freaking like awkward age and stage in life. I was a chubby kid at that point. Uh, I, you know, family didn't have a ton of money, so I was never wearing any name brand clothes. Uh, I was made fun of a lot. At that time, I was pretty introverted at school and in public. Um, I didn't make eye contact with people. Uh, I was bullied consistently. And uh, I struggled with my grades on and off. Um, and it was a very awkward time for me in life. So, yeah. And I felt, uh, I felt pretty alone. Didn't have a real core group of friends at all. Uh, felt fairly isolated. And, uh, yeah, I felt really, really lonely. Was there any reason for that? Do you think that was because of the way you grew up or was it just you as a personality? You know, no, um, I was always an outgoing kid and, uh, I was living in another town, a very small town for quite a while up until I was 10 years old. And I'm talking about like lived in a town of like a thousand people up in Maine. And then when we moved to, uh, the big city where there was about 6,000 people, let me tell you. And, uh, that transition, I was always this like kind of high energy guy and very extroverted. And the transition was just weird. Like people didn't accept it. Um, I was also like a very deep feeler. You know, I could sense things. I, I could just feel stuff. And I was, you know, probably what you'd say is a very sensitive kid um, while still being outgoing. And it just freaked some people out. I don't know what it was about it, but immediately I struggled to fit in and I desperately tried to, um, but I struggled. So I just, at, at that point, I just kind of stopped making eye contact with people because people made fun of me and, um, and it was very challenging for quite a while. So as a, as a kid, that must've been extremely difficult. Like you say, not actually at some points making eye contact with people. How did you sort of end up overcoming that as a kid? Because I mean, what you do today is the complete opposite. You get on yeah. podcasts, you're on stage, you're talking in front of hundreds of people. So how did you sort of like force yourself out of that? I turned 15 and then eighth grade, everything changed. Uh, <laughs> so, so if I had we, asked 15 year old, it's very, it was, yeah, it's very, very different. Um, and so we had uh, another school merge with ours and all these new kids showed up. And when I saw new kids, I was like, fresh start. I was like, this mm. is a crowd, brand new beginning. So I went to lunch with some of them. And this is a chapter now where I switched into being, now it's all about the attention and now being the class clown. Like I was like the original jackass back at that time. You know, like I'd throw my body around. I'd do all these wild stunts just to get attention. I would do outrageous things, like real shock humor. And people laughed and laughed and laughed and I performed for them. And at the same time, like I had that charisma too. My teachers liked me and I got along more with teachers than I did my peers. Um, and my teachers would sometimes pull me aside before class started. They were like, hey, Matt, like not today. Could you just like <laughs> just reel it in today? We got some important stuff to go over. I'm like, okay. And, you know, and so, but sometimes I just, I always had to sit by myself. Every class, it was like, please go sit over there away from everyone. And I still found a way to, to get some attention. But yeah, I mean, I would throw my body around whatever it took to get a laugh. And I mean, I had some really outrageous things I would do. And then I started dyeing my hair platinum blonde because Dennis Rodman was popular then. <laughs> um, I did all that stuff. 
And so it was, uh, it was pretty wild at the time. And I always had, again, like everybody was wearing like NBA basketball jerseys back then. There was the East Bay catalog. And again, talking about not having a lot of money growing up, everybody had the name brand, like superstar, all-star, like basketball jerseys. I always had the weird no names. Like everybody, it was always the, the jersey that was on sale. So it was like, you know, I didn't, for the Lakers, I didn't have like Magic Johnson. I had like Nick Van Exel, like just these guys that weren't really like a Denver Nuggets one that you think was like, oh, it's, it's Dikimbi Mutombo. And it was like, no, it's this Mahmoud Abdul Aruf. And like people are like, who's that? I'm like, he shoots foul shots really well. And so, <laughs> you know, Trust so it was just, it was so funny, like the stuff that I had, but like, you know, hey. Uh, eighth grade was a breakout year for me. <clears throat> and then Good I started to have to shift though into more of who I am. And I had to start going in a direction that was not just about being the funny guy. And that wasn't mm -hmm. until sophomore year. Yeah. So where did your journey begin then? Because after doing a little research about you, you haven't been self-employed from the beginning. You had a considerable amount of time in the corporate retail industry and it was essentially your experiences and troubles in that that have led to what you're doing today. So I've heard the story before and it's incredibly interesting. So I'd sort of love you to start from the beginning. You know, the interesting part is before I got into the retail industry, uh, I had always been an entrepreneur, actually. You know, my first business was when I was eight years old and I was basically running my own baseball card business, like trading, selling, like I'd go to the shows, like with my dad, I was, you know, dealing cards with 40 year old men, you know, and I could hold my own in negotiations. It was awesome. I loved it. And that was a small business for me. And then eventually I was mowing lawns. I was shoveling like driveways and stuff like that. So I always had something going on, you know, and then, you know, it was a kind of a freelance kind of thing in high school where I was a, the announcer at basketball games and uh, I got paid really well to be an announcer. It was kind of fun. And then, uh, but then I go into retail. Uh, I, my first gig is at Staples. And my, uh, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, um, she hooked me up with it. Like we both started working for Staples at the same time. Her uncle was a manager in Connecticut. So we relocated Connecticut for a summer to work at Staples together. And, uh, I'd never had a job like that before and I was put in the furniture department and I was awesome at it. Like, cause I could work really hard. I worked really hard. I got a hustle people. I was strong so I could carry all the freight around and they loved me. You know, I was a machine for them. I'd work as many hours as they wanted. And so, you know, I got a ton of praise and then I wandered over into electronics where I saw that they could sell warranties on computers and they could make extra money. So I just wandered over not knowing anything about computers and just started reading the, you know, the description of computers to customers. And then I'd sell the warranty and I'd make an extra $300 a week. And people are like, what are you, how are you doing that? I'm like, no, no, I just connect with people. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And so I loved the praise. I loved the recognition. I became one of the top sellers in the area. And uh, I, I would probably, I know I would have, I would have worked more for trophies and praise than I would have for the money. Cause I get to earn these like, like little pins, like flair mm -hmm. and like little S pins and all these things. Like I look like a four star general by the end of it. I had, I was covered in these stupid pins, but I loved them. It was great for me. So, but yeah, the money, the praise, I immediately forgot about the entrepreneurship. It was just gone. I was hooked in this. 
And so, yeah, I, I did that for quite a while. I had a brief stint where I left retail for a summer. Uh, 2002, I had an internship in San Antonio uh, just for the summer. And I was working for the San Antonio Spurs, um, an NBA team. And I took a year to get that thing. I worked my tail off. I hustled for it. And finally landed this super cool internship. Um, but then when it was over, uh, I went back and continued my retail career. And I was with Staples for seven years. And then I um, harassed a company called Kohlhan, which is a, a shoe company, luxury shoe company, handbags. They were a division of Nike at the time. And they had a home office in Maine just down the road from me. And uh, someone gave me an introduction to one of their people um, that I was doing some volunteer work with. And uh, they said, hey, look, uh, there's some great opportunities there. I'll introduce you to the HR. And again, I harassed them for a year. I kept showing up for different interviews. I was wearing, like, there was no job available for me. They didn't even know what to do with me. They just kept saying, well, go meet this person now. And finally, they said, hey, look, we got a job for you. It's either in uh, Austin, Texas, or Seattle. Where do you want to go? Just please just stop harassing us. And uh, I chose Austin, Texas. They moved my wife and I here. An incredible deal. I think the relocation package was like 75% of what my salary was going to be. It was amazing. And uh, that was history right there. That's what brought us to Texas and never wanted to leave. But I'll tell you what, though, those five years I spent at Cole Haan, I got experiences that I don't think most people would have at 25. Like I was given a ton of responsibility covering mm -hmm. territory at some point that felt it was close to 70% you know, of the country, you know, in the outlet division. And we just started building these teams and, and more and more and more. And again, the responsibilities were insane around marketing and uh, developing operational, uh, you know, you know, programs like leadership programs, promoting people, hiring, and like all of these crazy things. But it was also ridiculously stressful. Like mm -hmm. sometimes you'd be on the road for three months, you know, travel 25 nights a month. And that's when I started drinking Red Bull. Like right around 26, I started drinking 15 cans of Red Bull a day. And now that's when I lot. say 15 cans, I'm saying like eight ounce energy drinks. So sometimes there were 16 ounce cans. So, but at the end of the day, it equaled 15 eight ounce cans, you know, and I'm taking Adderall for my ADHD. So I'm taking an amphetamine with Red Bull. So I didn't know I was getting sick in my twenties, but I was losing my energy. The one thing that I felt was my value. I didn't think I was a smart person because people kind of like my grades were awful in high school. And I had a boss sometimes that would tell me that I'm stupid, um, but I was really a good hustler and I could get a lot of stuff done. So yeah, I started losing energy. So I just started drinking Red Bull all the time just to keep it, keep it going. Because again, I was praised for it. So uh, when it happened, I burned my, I ran myself on the ground. And you want to talk about like, we're in a pandemic right now, 2009, I got the last one, really. I got the swine flu, the H1N1. Uh, I shouldn't have gotten that at 29 years old. Like, you know, I was in great shape. Um, but I put myself in the perfect storm for that thing. Mm. I had been on airplanes nonstop. I was exhausted, not sleeping. I was eating like garbage. I had stopped working out for a while and I was under incredible stress. And I was in a hot zone on the border of Mexico visiting one of my stores. No wonder why I got sick. Man, that thing knocked, mm. knocked my ass out. I was out for like two weeks when I came back, someone actually said, we had a rumor that you died. <laughs> I was like, I didn't die. You know, but I was the first person in the Nike portfolio to get it. And uh, 
I learned recently that getting that um, actually made me very vulnerable to where I got a different disorder later on down the road. So yeah, I ran myself on the ground, man, to the point where I wasn't a good person to be around. Like I was a total douchebag. It is interesting that you touch on burnout though, because especially with today and you hear see here all the time on social media is that there's just this hustle mentality and that you've got to work 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 if you want to achieve which at the end of the day is true you have to put the effort in if you actually want to make it somewhere mm. <clears throat> but you have to look after yourself there is that element of the fact that your health is just as important as how hard you actually work and you mentioned that you just weren't sleeping how did how, what impact did the 15 cans of Red Bull have on your sleeping pattern? Could well, you sleep? Didn't. No, not really. Um, and I just started becoming kind of delirious after a while. Um, but it did, it did destroy my eating habits because my body was constantly craving fuel. Like, so mm -hmm. it needed carbs, it needed sugars. You know, I just didn't sleep. I, I was having a hard time at work, I was not having the best experience either, even though I was like getting promoted every year I was getting promoted. I was on a fast track, you know, but uh, I allowed myself to be manipulated into working all that much into not having boundaries. I mean, I look at it too, like I take accountability for it, but I only knew what I knew back then. Yeah. You know? And I just thought that's what you do. And you put your head down, you do the work and you just don't say anything. But yeah, no, I did not have the best mentor in the world. That's for sure. It was very toxic, actually. But I went along with it because they would promote me and sometimes they'd be really nice to me. Um, and then they treat me like garbage. So it ended up getting so bad, like I started lashing out in life because I was trying to take some kind of power back. I felt powerless. So I, I lashed out. Hurt people hurt people, you know. And so I'm driving a BMW. I've got all these nice clothes. I'm letting that stuff define me. I'm checking off all the boxes that society said would make me successful. And it made me a complete a-hole. You know, I was all about my airline status, my hotel status, my, you know, I was just such a prick, you know. And there was still parts of me though that really loved serving others, building teams. Like that was a big thing. But yeah. I felt like being a good leader was copying how my boss led too. Like I couldn't lead my way. I had to, I had to be a parrot basically. And I know I wasn't the leader that my teams always needed me to be. And I had a lot of shame for that. So what were your values then as an individual? And do you think you were working towards them? And why did you sort of like sidetrack away from them? So it, at my core, my values were really about serving others, lifting people up, seeing the potential in them, and hopefully, you know, being able to evoke that and to see it you know, fulfilled. And, uh, you know, and I had values around nature and I had values around music, you know, and, uh, and I had a relationship with faith, but that was all deep down. It was buried, like totally mm -hmm. buried. Um, what you really saw my values were, were material things, looking good, looking fancy, looking athletic, you know, uh, like I had the great job, I had the six-figure income, all of that crap. Like that's the stuff that, I, that looked like I valued, you know? And uh, it was a mask. Like I was just wearing a total mask. And it got to the point where I no longer recognized myself. I didn't even know who I was anymore. And I felt like if anybody saw 
who I really was underneath and what a disaster I am, I'd be totally unlovable. Like no one, no one would want to be around me anymore. I'd be a disappointment. I'd lose all of that success that I thought I was. And that's when, you know, at 29, I became suicidal. And, uh, and that's when I made an attempt at suicide. And obviously I wasn't successful, but it was a pretty big wake up call. So was, was that attempt then that sort of moment of realization of the fact of the person you had to become and the fact that you needed to change? Well, the realization was just like, yeah, I remember looking in the mirror. I was in a hotel on a business trip and I was like, maybe the world would just be better off without me. Because if, again, if everyone found out who I really am inside, how ugly I am, like how ugly I feel, what's the point? You know, mm. I, I, I feel like I would have let so many people down, you know, uh, my wife, my family, especially my dad. Uh, he was my hero. And, uh, you know, my sisters, everybody, my teachers, my coaches, you know, I just, I was somebody that thrived and lived off of praise. Well, who am I if I don't have that anymore? So, yeah, I was like, I'm just better off gone. And that's when, you know, I decided to take whatever Adderall I had left and maybe my heart would explode. You know, that was the whole intention. But, uh, you know, as I've mentioned before in other places, like I heard some music playing on my iPod in the background and it was, uh, <clears throat> Jeff Buckley's cover of hallelujah. And, uh, it's not always the lyrics of the song that impact me. It's just the flow of it too. It's just up and down. It's, it's climactic and it's it tells a story. I heard it and it was just something clicked inside me. I was like, I don't, this isn't right. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I wasn't going to go through it. And I just kind of purged everything out of me and passed out and woke up the next day and went to work. No one knew about it until, you know, like a year later when I, when I finally told the therapist. How did that feel when you did tell someone? It was amazing. Like, and again, like it took me completely crashing, you know, a few months later, actually, it was a few months later. Um, but I didn't talk about the, uh, the suicide thing probably for six months, actually. Um, but I went on medical leave because I was a disaster. I had crippling anxiety and depression, crippling anxiety. It was the first time I ever felt it just curled up in a ball, sobbing, shaking, like violently. Like every time I could hear my phone go, go off, I had a Blackberry at the time. That's how old it was. Um, and I'd hear that ding sound. I would just like, I'd just start shaking because you know, maybe it was my boss and I was just like, oh, I'm in trouble. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was an awful moment, but going on medical leave because of the depression and anxiety was huge for me. And I ended up leaving my job, which sucked, but, uh, I took a good six months off, did therapy, did a boot camp of self-discovery work. I was like, man, I need to know where I went off track in life. And where did I compromise my values? When did I start negotiating with them? And actually, what are my values? Again, I totally forgot. And uh, who am I without praise and without the salary and without the fancy shit? You know, I had to figure out where I was really hurting in life. Because obviously, I was in deep pain. And I was using all these other things in life, all these kind of addictions that I had, especially like spending and eating and just all this garbage, man. Um, you know, pornography too, because I'd been exposed to that when I was a kid and just, you know, all of these things trying to fill this emptiness inside me, this pain, and none of it would ever fill the tank. 
it would give me a slow boost, but then I always felt ashamed of myself after. So the therapy part was huge. I just immersed myself in it. You know, group work, therapy, going back out to the mountains. I got really fat and grew a beard. Um, like, I mean, I got up to like, you know, I'm like five, nine and I was like 250 pounds. Um, it was a disaster, but I was sleeping and it felt great. So mm. that's when uh, I started my, my journey, but For I sure. still, still stayed in retail though. So before we touch on that, I'd love to go into a little more detail on addiction because I, you've touched on it here. You, I mean, Red Bull addiction, definitely. Um, but you've also got addicted to the lifestyle and you sort of said from an early age, praise was an addiction of yours. Mm -hmm. That was my first. So I think people can be quite naive to the term addiction and the fact that they, when you say it, they instantly relate it to alcohol and drugs, mm -hmm. for example, and they haven't got an open mind to the fact that it can literally be pretty much anything. So from your personal experiences and how it's affected you have you got any tips for people who out there may think that they do have an addiction and how they can combat that you know one of the biggest giveaways is is when people ask you um you know i wonder if i'm an alcoholic and, uh, and they tell me the scenario and i'm like you know um people who aren't alcoholics don't ask that question so, like, you know, like if you're asking the question, you know, that's already a start. If you're thinking it in private too, like, yeah, do I have, is this a problem? Also, the other thing that's really big is when you do something, how do you feel after? And if the answer is shame and regret, then you got something to take a look at, you know? Mm. So, and the, the interesting part is anything that involves instant gratification, typically, is followed by shame and regret. Like eating a whole cake, you know, sounds delicious, great idea, eating junk food, whatever, instant gratification. Pretty quickly afterwards, it's just like, why did I do that? You know, and you don't feel good about it. You know, it's the motivation behind it. If you're eating because you wanna dull some kind of pain or you're emotionally upset, then man, you should rethink that. But uh, same thing goes with drinking, same thing goes with spending. You know, if you buy something and, and you feel guilty afterwards and ashamed of that purchase, you know, you might have something to look at there. Mm. So it's really the motivation behind things. You know, if we were to take a look at something more complicated, say, um, say praise. Praise can be a little more complicated because for me, it looked complicated. I wanted to be a good boy. That was it. Like I grew up in divorce. I was very lucky to have a great mom and dad that, that remained friends, but I have no memories of them ever being married. It happened when I was like a year old. Um, but, you know, growing up with a couple stepdads and, uh, you know, I just wanted to be that good boy. And I was the oldest. I was the only boy. I had multiple sisters and I was the oldest. They were half in step. Um, but, you know, when I was told that I was strong, that I was, you know, emotionally strong, that I was mature and responsible and polite, you know, that just like, yeah, like I feel good. And that's the way I need to be. I need to be strong. I need to, you know, be there for people who are feeling down, but I shouldn't show emotions. I should just be there for those who do. But like, what was the interesting part was if I heard an adult tell my mom, oh, your son is so polite. Well, 
now my motivation to be polite wasn't because it's the right thing to do. It was because I wanted people to say that. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thing. It's like, oh, am I doing this because it's the right thing to do? Or am I doing this because of what I'm going to get out of it? And the same thing goes for I'm naturally a servant in life. Like I want to help people. I always have. But that relationship can go in two different areas. What is my motivation for serving somebody? When I'm really in a bad place and I have a bad relationship with myself, I will serve somebody from a completely narcissistic perspective of I want to feel needed and wanted and important. Like I'll help somebody because you need me. Like you'll need me now. You'll value me, you know? And then when I'm in a great place in life, I'm doing it because it's a purpose, because it's selfless. And I want to serve somebody to see them rise up and be their best version of themselves so that they can serve someone else too. And their brilliance can just shine in this world. You know, so there's two different perspectives. And it's always asking yourself, what is my motivation behind what I'm doing? So are you completely over that now? Or do you still sometimes find yourself going from that narcissistic perspective. Absolutely. Like you're never cured from it. Like we're mm. human. You know, it's just like having this saboteur shadow voice. You know, it's not something we're born with. We acquired it over the years when somebody tells us what we can and can't do, how we should dress, how we should talk, like all of these different types of things. We get this voice in our head. They're insecurities. So that's why I have to sometimes be very intentional and ask myself, well, all right, what's my motivation behind doing this? You know, and then that's when I check myself. That's why I also surround myself with amazing people that align with my values because they'll call me out on my crap and I'll call them out on theirs. We all have blind spots. We all have down days. Just because I speak a lot about depression and overcoming depression doesn't mean I don't get depressed anymore. I still do, but yeah. I got a lot more tools in my tool belt on how to support myself through that. I have a lot of awareness. And so, yeah, the stuff still shows up. But I have awareness. For sure. So still sort of relating it to this perspective then, and especially young entrepreneurs, they, I have a feeling that a lot of young individuals wanting to go into entrepreneurship <clears throat> want it for the shiny object syndrome. All they really have in mind and their meaning behind it is the money. Being someone that <clears throat> even in the corporate world at a young age had the six-figure salary, had the nice car, had basically what people aspire to have. Going then into entrepreneurship, did you realize from the get-go that just money wasn't on the cards for you? That is not the reason you were doing it. <clears throat> it started to get to that point. But the problem was, like, I was starting to go into massive debt. Like, the sins of my youth had caught up to me. The credit card debt, massive credit card debt from all the spending. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, my wife had been out of work for a while. This is like 2015 and she'd been out of work, uh, cause we had a son, we had a little boy in 2013, but she had been out for a while and it wasn't planned either. You know, she had some injuries, uh, from the birth that kept her out of work. <clears throat> and so, and I had herniated my back and I had those bills and, um, but by this, the fall of 2014 is when I started coaching school. I had this like epiphany when I was at Under Armour, when I was about to leave Under Armour. I was like, I was exposed to the coaching industry and I was like, oh, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I don't want to yeah. sell shirts and shoes anymore. I don't want to lead people in the industry that's selling shirts and shoes. I love serving others and that's it. I'm done drinking the Kool-Aid. 
I don't want to work another Thanksgiving. I don't want to work another Easter or Christmas, like any of that stuff. I was like, no, I want to do this on my own terms. I'm not meant to work for somebody because I, I wasn't. I just didn't fit in. Even though I excelled and I was really good at what I did, I realized that just because I'm good at it doesn't mean I'm supposed to do it. Hmm. So I was like, screw the money. Like, I'm never home. Like, I had a little boy that I only saw on weekends. And I was like, what the hell? Like, I, I love this kid. I want to be a part of his life. I, would, I was brought to tears, man, that I was missing out on his life. And when he was born, my dad died a month later. Just dropped dead instantly. I was like, man, I lost my best friend. He was 61. You know, I was like 35 at the time. And uh, I was like, I don't want that. And I was like, I'm never going to miss out on a special day in my son's life. And I'm going to fight like hell to find a way out. I need an exit strategy. But the money conversation that I think everybody works through, that most people work through, I work through was, I don't have enough time and I don't have enough money to do this. I can't make a leap. I can't take a pay cut. I can't take a pay cut. I need to save up. Once I save up, once I know my niche, once I have business cards, once I have an LLC, once I have a website, uh, then I'll be ready to go. Once I have a certification, actually. All this stuff, waiting for that perfect moment. And then it didn't happen, but the choice was made for me. I got sick. I got really sick. I got really, really, really sick. Like, diagnosed with a ton of illnesses. So that glamorous lifestyle as an entrepreneur, where it's like, oh, maybe I'll do a side gig, get this thing going. Uh, nah, that didn't happen that way. Like, no. Like, I was coaching people nights and weekends. Like I was still working like 70 hours a week in my retail gig, but I would start coaching people nights and weekends while I was in coaching school. I loved it. It was the first time I ever felt like an A student. I was like, I found my people, I found my home. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm pissed off that I can't have it. Like seriously, I've been shown what I'm supposed to do in life and I can't have it. That's so friggin' cruel. It felt awful. And so what happened was, you know, when I got really sick, my depression went through the roof. I started falling asleep in, the, in, in my car at par in parking lots. I couldn't pay attention when I was in stores. I started getting super irritable. Like my boss would give me like some constructive criticism. I'd all of a sudden just start crying. It was weird. I was like, why am I doing this? And then sometimes I'd turn into the Hulk and I would just rage, you know, and I'd make up these stories in my head about what's going on and people are against me. All the things that be, were skills of mine, I started changing. I started like one day I'm really good at conflict resolution and the next day I'm, I'm awful at it. What's going on? Every day something changed and I didn't know why. And it was embarrassing. Embarrassing. You know, I had one boss say like, where's the person I hired? I was like, oh man. Like, I didn't, they would ask me, what's wrong? What's going on? What's wrong with you? And I, like, I didn't know how to answer that. I don't know. So I finally went on medical leave after I got diagnosed with some stuff. I got diagnosed with narcolepsy. So I'm falling asleep all the time. That makes sense. Which ironically, I think my dad had too. And I used to make fun of him all the time because he'd fall asleep while I was talking to him. I was like, could you pay attention, man? <laughs> um, and he'd fall asleep at a rock concert. I remember that. He's like, and I'm like you know, but karma's a bitch. And so I'm getting it now. And I developed this thing called cataplexy, which only is paired with narcolepsy. And apparently, cataplexy was spurred by when I had swine flu, I learned. Like, people who get that 
typically will get swine, but will get cataplexy too. And it goes hand in hand with narcolepsy. You never have cataplexy by itself. Narcolepsy, only one in 2,000 people get it. But people who have both are even less common in this world. So kudos for me. I never half-ass anything, so I don't half-ass illnesses either. So <laughs> like, let's go big, baby. And um, I had Addison's disease. My body stopped making adrenaline and cortisol, all the stress hormones. So that's what was going on. Every time I got stressed out physically or emotionally, I, my body would start to go into shock. Like I was having an adrenal crisis, not adrenal fatigue. That's thrown around a lot. Adrenal insufficiency. Like my body wasn't making it. I lost all my testosterone. That, that happened pretty much from the lack of sleep in the Red Bull. My body just said, hey, screw you. We're not going to make this anymore. Like <laughs> it was crazy. And now they were also saying I had a traumatic brain injury from too many concussions when I played high school football. Because again, I got praise. So I used my body as a battering ram. And um, all this crap caught up with me. All of it. The cataplexy was an interesting one. I still learned about that a lot. If I get super stressed out, my face starts to droop a little bit. Like my eyelid starts to droop. My speech is slurred. And I go into this cataplectic seizure where my body shakes, it looks like a seizure, but I'm totally conscious. I can barely talk. I can move my eyes, but I can't move really. My body's shaking, but I can't really do anything. All this crap, man, really weird stuff. And uh, that, that drew a line in the sand for me. Called HR, I said, I'm, I'm not coming in to work next week. I'm going on medical leave. I was terrified. It was a scary ass call to make. But guess what? Now. I'm on medical leave and I'm like, maybe this is time to look at what building a business is like. You know what the mm -hmm. one thing I didn't do was hustle and grind. I was like, there's got to be a different way. Hustle and grind, no more. I'm like, I'm going to find a way to develop a lifestyle first and then build a career around it. Easier said than done though, because now I have a overdrafted bank account so I have less than $0. I have a wife out of work. I have a toddler. I'm disabled. I'm on short-term disability, like applying for long-term disability. Uh, I have the energy to work maybe 20 hours a month. And uh, I'm not through coaching school yet. I can't afford business cards, a website, or anything. All I had was just LinkedIn at the time, and it was free. Hmm. And I had no friends either. I had no friends in my community because I was never home. So how's that for a glamorous, you know, entrepreneurial life? Not very. And oh, I, I like the way you nobody was supporting me either. I have very few people like, yeah, life coach. That sounds like a great career for you. Like that's not even a real job. So you fruitcake. <laughs> I like the way that you have mentioned that as well because and how you mentioned that how you thought you were waiting for the perfect start at the time. You're building on the side, this, that, and the other. The perfect time to start, just and you've explained it, just doesn't exist. Yeah, man. Like if you're waiting for the perfect moment, like you better get used to waiting. Mm. You know, and I've worked with clients too who are, who are well off. They're like they've got a great savings ready. You know, they they're in a great position for it. They've even got the whole business plan lined up, LLC, everything that I talked about. They've got it, and they're still like, not yet. I just I need to know. That it's gonna work. I'm like, no one guarantee. <laughs> guarantee? 
And finally, I was very bold and I said, you know why you're not going to do this? And they go, why? Because you're not desperate enough. Hmm. You're not desperate enough. They go, what are you talking about? I was like, maybe when you lose your savings, maybe when you lose your health, maybe when you get fired, you know, maybe your whole world gets flipped upside down. Maybe you'll actually do some shit that makes a difference. Maybe you'll finally take the leap because you won't have anything. Your safety net is gone. So you're not desperate enough to do this. They were pissed. But then they knew I was right. Mm. So, because yeah, you can either make the choice or the choice will be made for you. And for me, it was made for me. And then I decided to do something with it. Yeah, because I suppose at that time and where you were forced to do it, you were desperate. You had no other choice other than to make this work. Well, no, I had another choice. Just give up, be a victim. I could just give up. I could be a total victim and I could use every single one of those illnesses that were on my medical charts. It was a perfect list of excuses. Those were my outs. I could have just said, I have this. Like, it's incurable. It's debilitating. I can't do anything. You know, those were my excuses. But I didn't, I fought with that man. I was a victim for a while, off and on. Like, I was so tired and pissed off and upset at the world. And I was like, I want someone to rescue me. I want to be rescued and somebody should help me. Why should I lose everything before somebody helps me? Why do we always do that? I was pissed at people who had resources in life that wouldn't give them to me. I was like, you can help. Like you could save my ass. Why won't you? I was pissed at them. The best thing they ever did was not give me that stuff. But the other best thing they did for me was they loved on me. And I knew now, like if I was really in trouble, if I was really, really in trouble, they would have stepped in. It's like they knew they were there. They were watching me. And you don't know how creative and resourceful you are until your back's against the wall. Like right now, global pandemic, look how friggin' creative people are getting. For sure. Restaurants, like the small businesses that aren't failing right now, they're the word pivot that's being used all the time. They're transitioning into like doing really creative stuff now. It's amazing. Like I've seen even birthday parties. People are driving up and dropping presents off, you know, at the driveway. People are got signs that say honk, it's my birthday. Like all these different things are happening because we're in a position where we have to be creative and resourceful right now. The same thing goes for you as a person. You can find a way. You will find a way. We're designed like that as human beings. Every single one of you is designed that way. But until you're held in that space, until you're actually held in a space to be creative and resourceful, you won't do it. If you're getting advice every day, if you're getting rescued every day, you will never tap into that part of yourself. Exactly. And I love that because in, in a way, that what, with all this pandemic going on, it's awful. It, what is happening is awful. But as a human race, we've ha- as you say, we have had to transition. And if it wasn't for this, people would have just carried on as if they were and they would never, ever have thought about it. But we've been forced into this and it's forced people to adapt and we will come out stronger. We will come yeah. out of this pandemic stronger than, if, than we went in. And it's, yeah, it's never Yeah. No, and you know what the thing is? Like, I didn't think I'd survive some of this stuff in life in the past. You know, but all of it was training. Like, I didn't think I'd survive a suicide attempt and all that stuff I went through, but I did. And then it trained me to go through this phase in life next where I'm trying to build a business. Mm-hmm. And then all that stuff I went through is now making this whole pandemic thing seem not that crazy. I'm like, you know, it's still crazy, but like emotionally, like, I'm like, okay, the things that have stressed me out is not being around my family. 
Mm. You know, that's been hard. Like we're separated right now because of this whole quarantine thing. They're 2,200 miles away. I can't see them. But um, other than that, this has all been training, man. And, you know, I'm thrilled. I will tell you this, like that business, that first, that first year of my coaching business, like it's probably eight months full-time coaching. I went from a six-figure salary to making $15,000 in eight months, you know, with nobody working. But you know what happened though? I never lost my house. I didn't lose my car. I destroyed my credit but I didn't lose stuff. Mm. It, that's, it was crazy. Didn't lose stuff. I, I couldn't afford stuff, but I found a way. I negotiated with credit card companies. We negotiated with the mortgage company. We negotiated with our car loans. All the stuff that people are doing right now because they're out of work. Like That's the stuff I was doing back in 2015. Yeah. Creative and resourceful. It was amazing. Started cutting things out of my life. We don't need cable TV. You know, we just need internet. That's it. Because that's how I'm going to run my business. You know, we don't need two cars right now. You know, I don't need to buy new clothes anymore. I definitely don't need any more damn shoes because I've worked for shoe companies forever and I've got like 75 pairs. You know what I can do? I can sell stuff. So I just started selling things. You get super creative. But as an entrepreneur, I was already good at asking for money for my craft. That's the number one thing that I think a lot of people struggle with when they become entrepreneurs. What is my value? How much should I charge? Like what an easy place for me to be in is to be in a place of desperation right now and take on every, any client I can get because I'm desperate. I have to have money. I didn't do that. There was a couple of times I was guilty of it and it always kicked me in the ass. But you have to remember this as an entrepreneur. You cannot run a business from desperation because if you do, your clients will feel it, especially if you're saying, I really, what do I got to do for, to make you my client? Like, I'll do anything you want. I'll disc if you start discounting right off the bat, nope, not good. I was willing for people to say no. Yeah. I was I willing for people to say no. And I was willing to say no to people too. I'm like, I don't think we're going to be the right fit. Yeah. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm going to hate working with this person and they're not going to like working with me. So just because they want to give me money doesn't mean I should take it. And that's surprising for someone that was struggling at the time to get going. So at what point off. then, yeah, at what point then did it start to shift? What point did you start realizing, right, this is it. This is actually yeah. working. This is sustainable. It was probably, it was right around the end of winter time in 2016 now. I officially certified as a coach, got my credentials, and I was invited to, in the spring, I got invited first at the end of winter, but I was invited in the springtime to go to this business club academy as a speaker by Adam Flores, this really amazing kid at the time, out in Irvine, California. And it was this huge seminar that he was hosting at Hotel Irvine. And he asked me to come and be a speaker for LinkedIn, like on LinkedIn tips. Because that's how I was building 70% of my business was LinkedIn. It's totally free. Awesome. And I did it just by posting content. It was great. I had already built a great network at the time. I had like, I don't know, 20,000 followers at the time. It was great. But so I go to this event. It, it's not paying me but because I, I did a trade of services with a guy. But he paid for my flight and my lodging. And I got to speak in front of like 300 entrepreneurs. Man, it was amazing. I'm still sick. I didn't have a lot of energy, 
But I got on that stage. I loved it. And then when I sat down and I'm listening to all the things he's talking about, the value and all that stuff, I was still good at charging. But like, I remember um, faith is a value of mine. So I'm going to say God. So if it freaks anybody out, I'm not like shoving it down your throat. It's just a value of mine. Um, and I remember hearing like God speak to me as I'm sitting in the back of the room watching this presentation. And uh, I remember saying, I'm like, I love this life. Like, this is my dream, but I can't, from a health perspective, work with enough people right now to pay my bills. I don't have the energy. And I heard him say right back to me, he said, well, raise your rates. I was like, Simple as. It's like, I can't. Like, people will say no. And he's like, I wasn't asking for your opinion. <laughs> raise your rates. I was like, okay. And um, so I started writing numbers down right there at that moment. Started writing numbers down for my packages that I had. I, I was already out of the hourly game because I knew that. That was not going to work. I had packages. Three, six, 12 months. Wrote down this one number. I, was like, I scratched it out. Wrote down five more. And finally, I got to this lower number. And he goes, shaking his head. I could see God just going, no. And I was like, really? So I went back to the first number I crossed out because it made me want to throw up in my mouth when I saw it. I can't say that out loud. But I did. You know, a few weeks later, I started pitching that number. It was like quadruple what I was charging, you know? And uh, all of a sudden, somebody said yes to it. And I was like, no shit. <laughs> I think I said it out loud yeah. to them. I was like, no shit. <laughs> and uh, what that did was it, it validated me in saying like, okay, I'm uncomfortable with this. And that's the number I put out. I need to, I need to say numbers that make me uncomfortable because that's when I know I'm starting to charge what I'm worth. I'm starting to own my value. And what it does is it attracts other people who are willing to pay that amount. Look, if you want to be a $50, you know, an hour coach, great. You're going to attract more $50 an hour clients though, because they're going to refer you to other people who want to pay $50 an hour. So, yeah, you got to raise your game and you got to be willing for people to say no. And you got to be willing not to offer a discount right off the friggin' bat. You can't assume what's in their wallet. Every nice. single potential client has always said, and financially things are challenging. Yeah, it's always, everyone says that, you know, but that's a perspective. You don't know what their financial challenge is versus yours. Mine could be, I can't put gas in my car. Somebody else's financial challenge could be like, yeah, I just can't afford the gas for my helicopter right now. It's just, it's challenging. Like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, but it's different for everyone. So you can't assume. And I'm not, it's not, I'm not treating my client with respect, potential client with respect if I'm making the assumption they can't afford me. So I treat them like everybody else. I'm like, hey, this is what I charge. So I did change my business model a little bit where I allowed three clients at any given time that I could put on a scholarship program. And I had a threshold for it because if I don't, I would do it with everybody because I love people and I want to help everybody. But if they qualified, if they fit a certain like criteria, and they didn't know I was looking at this, but if they fit all this criteria for me where they were going to treat it like they were getting a million dollars, you know, they were going to pay a million bucks for this and they were going to do the work and they were hungry for it. And I was excited to work with them too. I'd propose a scholarship to them. I said, all right, you get to name your price. You got to pick something that stretches you, but doesn't stress you. You got to pick a number that hurts like hell every month when you pay it. But it's not to the point where you're like, how am I going to pay my bills? My spouse is fighting with me over this. I don't want that. It defeats the purpose. You'd be surprised how many people struggle to come up with a number because they're so insecure about it. Like, 
can you give me like a base of like, I don't want to insult you. Like what? I, I, give me a ballpark. I'm like, nah, this is your thing. I was like, yeah. I want to see you work through this. If you can, that's my other th- test with it too, is if they can work through the insecurities and kind of like the demons you have to face to ask for what you need to ask for help to pitch your own proposal. I want to work with you. Totally want to work with you if you can do that. So, and if I do it because if, if someone didn't, you know, if, if someone didn't do it for me, I wouldn't be here right now. So, but yeah, I started significantly raising my rates and I started still to this day. Anytime says, someone says, what have you learned, you know, this past year from running your business? I'm like that. I, I don't dream big enough. So true. Like every milestone I had, I was like, that was really easy. Mm. Yeah, I need to dream bigger, you know? And still I'm like, geez, I should dream even bigger, you know? So it, it, uh, it only took, see, year one, like 15 grand. <clears throat> Going into year two, it's like 45. And then by the end of year two, like turning into year three, that was, that was the blow up year. Like that's when it went from 45 to a six figure salary, you know? And, and it's like last year was the best performing year of my entire professional career. And it was all off one on one coaching zero money like spent on marketing, no additional tools. Like I paid for a calendar program, you know, and zoom, but like no finished website, just totally Mm -hmm. grassroots. That's it. Shows that you don't need all the fancy equipment. No, you don't because sometimes it's like looking for a magic pill. Yeah. So I didn't even have a premium LinkedIn account. I just said basic, but you know what I was good at? I was good at talking about my business to a stranger anywhere because I did that every single day. I put myself in a position where someone would say, so what do you do? And I had to do that elevator pitch, which I ended up turning into a story, a 60 second story, you know? And I truly believe that if you can't talk about what you do without someone's eyes glazing over, then you have no business buying marketing tools. You know, if you want to work with someone in branding, maybe that makes sense, you know, develop your pitch, but I just worked on it over and over and over again. It keeps evolving over time now too. So uh, it was a wild ride. But now the consequence of that though, of doing everything grassroots means sometimes you have a harder time letting go of things. And then you find that it's harder to scale now because um, you're doing everything the hard way. Like, yeah. you know, you have all these grassroots tools and now it's like, well, what do I invest in? What do I let go of now? Like I'm, I, I have my hands in everything. So there is a disadvantage of it too, but I'm, I'm honestly, I'm very thankful that I did it that way. Cause now I know how everything works and I know how creative I am. Amazing. And that, this flows in perfectly to the part of the podcast where I sort of talk about with my guests, what they believe their two biggest failures are in their journey so far in their entrepreneurial journey. So since you started your own business and you mentioned the point of not hiring a VA, was that because of the fact you just didn't want to let go of anything? Well, the first thing is, is I had this belief I can't afford one. Very short-sighted limiting belief because if you don't pay for one, then what does it really cost you? You know, and if you do pay for one, then, and you get say, say you get five hours back in your week of stuff that you, you didn't want to do. That was kind of monotonous stuff. What kind of ROI would you get back on those five hours? 
If you could take mm. those five hours and focus it on something that you're ridiculously good at, well, what would be possible? Could pay, it could exceed that, like what you were, like, so you think of like, what are the top like three to five things that I hate doing that don't utilize my top competencies and skill sets? And I delegated those out to somebody else. I forgot that that's what I was really good at in my retail career. I was great at delegating things and following up. So now I got to create some standard operating procedures. I got to figure out some stuff. And so, yeah, I spoke to several VAs and, you know, I met some great people and uh, Amanda Mundo out in Las Vegas, like just a rock star for me. Like we came up with this great program where she could start helping me out with stuff. It was social media. And it was just like, man, this is going to be a game changer. Like, why didn't I invest in this a long time ago? So, yeah, because I love the mentality of I'll sweep the floor where I work. That's a great mentality to have. I love that. I'm willing to do anything. I won't ask anyone to do anything that I'm not willing to do. But at some point, it becomes financially irresponsible for you to sweep the floor because you have a lot of value and now you're not utilizing it where it should be. So there's somebody else that could sweep that floor for you and you could now focus on revenue you know, generating strategies. For sure. So that was a pretty big thing. It was a learning lesson, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a great point to make as well. And we haven't had anyone touch on that so far. And your other failure, no one's touched on either. And that is the fact that you didn't leverage your email list. Why? No, I didn't. Uh, I was just like, I didn't know what the hell to do with it. You know, I never bought any tools. Like, I, again, I didn't think I could afford like something like Infusionsoft or ClickFunnels or all this stuff. And I just, I just, I was always used to just creating content. Like, and all of my clients came from grassroots. They all came from LinkedIn or word of mouth. And I could do it without doing a sales pitch. I could just do it by putting stuff out there. It was attraction-based marketing. I was very bold in my strategies. I was willing to say things that would piss people off. And I was also willing to say the same thing that would greatly attract my audience. So I had a line in the sand of who my raving fans were and who weren't. But I pulled my email list from LinkedIn there was a point in time where you could pull an archive from your LinkedIn and you would get people's emails too because they connected with you. They shared their data with you. I racked up like, like 26,000 emails from that. You can't get it anymore. I was lucky. I, download, I would download an archive every month. And so I had all those emails plus some I had accumulated from speaking events and book sales. Um, and now it was like, man, I just had this list, but I didn't know what to do with it up until like this past year and then ran it through a program like Kajabi and, and started having people opt in. Um, I'll tell you what, uh, I learned some lessons in that whole process. One, I learned how to send a mass email without it sounding like a piece of garbage. Like yeah. it was a form, like people know it's a template, but if I made it sound like me and I didn't put a sales pitch in that first one either, it was just very much like, Hey, look, thanks for being a fan. Thanks for supporting me. If you want to like get some more epic stuff from me, if like if you want to follow this stuff, like I'd be honored to serve. If you don't, totally cool. Like just opt out. I got a lot of feedback from people though that said, normally I throw this crap away. It was this was pretty, it's pretty good. <laughs> they were like, it was a pretty good pitch, man. It was a very good template. And some people were like, can I steal this? I'm like, go ahead. Um, but the people who want don't want to opt in. Oh, they're deeply offended. Like there's some, oh, how dare you email me? You are yeah. a piece of garbage. 
I'm like, are you okay? Like you more than anyone needs a life coach or a hug. I don't know. But like, just like, holy cow, like this visceral reaction from some people. Like, and they're like, I never authorized this. And I don't like, how did, like, why did you connect with me? I'm like, you connected with me two years ago. That's impossible. I'm like, it's right <laughs> here. You sent the connection request, you lunatic. And so like, I would just deeply, I would apologize. I'm like, it's all right, cool. And we just like remove those people right now. So, but there was like two lists. There were the people who opted in and then there's the people who were neutral. They didn't opt out. They didn't opt in. Until those people opt out, they're still in. Like, I'm going to keep sending them stuff. You know, I haven't gotten to that point, but like now I'm, I'm up to, I got 22,000 emails to play with. That's a and lot. my wife has helped design a great click funnel um, for me and working on getting ready to launch that thing. So here's what I'm proud of. I built a great six-figure business, one-on-one -on -one coaching and doing some speaking. It's friggin' huge for me, man. Like just one-on-one -on -one coaching, people told me that you can't do that. You have to do executive coaching. You have to do group work. No automated stuff, just one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm super proud of that. But it's only one stream of income. And if the clients die off, well then your one stream of income sucks. So that's where now it's, I want to be able to offer, you know, webinars and automated services, not because the money, you know, it's also because I want to serve. This is my life purpose. Yeah. So my one-on-one -on -one coaching rates got so high that I was losing touch with an audience that I was a part of and still am a part of some days. Um, because just because I make this great salary doesn't mean it's a piece of cake. I've got a lot of debt for my sins and my medical bills. Like, oh man, things are still tight, but I'm loving the friggin' journey and I know what I'm capable of, but I still want to serve this audience of other people where, hey, maybe 30 bucks a month feels like a lot of money. Yeah. Awesome. I want to help them. So they still put some skin in the game, you know, but the barrier to entry is not going to be life-threatening. It's going to be all right. So I want to be able to do that. It's my way of serving. And here's the thing too. It seems like on LinkedIn, there was this transition that happened where if you didn't say you were there to serve first, it was like you were a horrible human being. Like if you, if you expressed the interest of making money for your business, it was like, how dare you? Like you're I say evil. it's still the same way, sort of. It is the same way. It is. You can't talk about money. So no. you've seen it too. I'm not crazy. No, you're not crazy at all. <laughs> all right. I was like, maybe it's my brain injury talking. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, no. And I decided, I was like, look, there's nothing evil about making money. And this ties back to the, what I said earlier. It's your motivation. What is your motivation? For me, my motivation, my understanding is I want to make a shitload of money. I do. I want to make as much as possible. I don't want to make just enough. People love saying, that. I want to make just enough to pay my bills. Really? Like just enough? You want to just skate by in the middle? Like how are you going to do anything like in life that makes a difference if you make just enough? You know, just enough. It, it's not saying you're ungrateful because you want to make a lot of money. It doesn't say you're greedy. But what it means is like when I want to make a shitload of money, it means that the more money I make, the more I can serve. The more money I make, the more I can serve in this world. I'm done buying the material crap. I don't want anything else anymore. Like I'm done with it. I sold most of it. Three years ago, like two years ago, I sold, like my wife and I sold almost everything we owned so we could travel, leased our house out for three years, got rid of all the material crap, put enough stuff in a storage facility. We traveled in an RV. We went back to Maine for a while. We experienced life. It's great. 
You know, my house is still leased out. I'm living in a small apartment right now. It's like 700 square feet, you know, but I don't need the big space anymore. All the glamorous crap you see other entrepreneurs doing. Screw that, man. I don't need to spend money on that. I'm reinvesting into my business. I'm reinvesting into my family. No, man, I'm thinking long-term. I'm surrounding myself with great people. I am investing money into going to events that I want to be a part of. I spend money on going to events that I want to speak at someday and that are going to have my people there. Yeah. That's why I invested some money in going to the gathering in February, like one of the most epic events of my entire life out in Banff, Canada, you know, run by a really good friend of mine, Ryan Gill. I'm blown away by this thing. And it was finally, it was an event that was not filled with like, and it's no offense, like it just wasn't a bunch of social media influencers for once. There's some amazing, talented people out there. I, I respect them tremendously, but I wanted a different perspective. And these were like CF, you know, CMOs and, and executives from some of the biggest brands on the planet that had cult-like followings, just great cultures, massive fan base, and they were sharing intimate stories about how they became who they are, and they were running multi-billion dollar companies. I was like, I want to see these people, and I want to be around the people that go to this thing other all-stars elevates your game. So again, this whole mentality of, I can't afford to do these things. I can't, I just want to stay in my, my LinkedIn bubble or the social media influencers bubble. Like you don't get a global perspective. I'm like, I'm breaking out of that. I don't want to hear any more talk about click funnels and marketing strategy. I, I want to go see what these big guys have been doing. Amazing. Global perspective. I don't so even perf- going with this. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great outlook to have though. And that is the bulk of the podcast episodes today. And I mean, cool. What an amazing episode that's been. Um, <laughs> so much to take away. Definitely going to have to listen to this back again myself multiple times. But as I mentioned before we started, I round every single episode with a final five. Quick final five questions Bring that I round off every single episode. You ha- I haven't warned. So the listeners know I do not warn my guests what these questions are going to be. Granted, they are the same in every episode. So if they have listened to one of my podcast episodes, they could probably Son prepare. Of a bitch. But <laughs> but they are they're, they're just interesting questions. This is why I ask them right. and I get normally get different answers to every single one. So first question Who is the first person that comes to mind when I say the word successful? Ryan Gill. Why? I know you've just mentioned him, but why yeah. in particular? Uh, just because, uh, one, he's extraordinarily humble. Uh, he is a, somebody that shows up and work, you know, baseball cap and jeans, but runs multiple businesses, and he builds amazing cultures. Like, he surrounds himself with amazing people, and he's built these just great organizations. And he, he, he just doesn't walk or talk that way, though. He's very confident, but at the same time, it's just like, you know, amazing human being. And just the way he treats everybody with the utmost respect and dignity and integrity, like I really look up to that. It's amazing. Great human being, but he doesn't have to show it. So like an old guy. You. Yeah. Great, great human being. What is the best investment you've ever made? So this can be money, time, or simply an Amazon purchase. <laughs> an Amazon purchase. I love that. Uh, you know, uh, the two biggest investments I, I, I would have to say is my one, my VA. Uh, the second one, though, is actually going to that event, the cult gathering in Canada, which say cult gathering that freaks people out a little bit. Um, 
But again, that event, that three-day event, man, game changer. When you're listening to like the CMO of like Coca-Cola and Under Armour and Doritos and Skittles and Spotify, you know, Harlem Globetrotters, Philadelphia 76ers, all of those people, like that's just a little bit of the group that was there all under one roof. Like, holy cow, Hot Wheels, like it was amazing. And the people yeah. you talk to, like when you surround yourself with other all-stars, like this was a big, expensive event. Best investment in ever. Like it just made my head explode with potential. Amazing. Out of interest then, what would have been your, what's been your favorite Amazon purchase? My favorite Amazon purchase? <laughs> oh. Looks around, love- looks around the apartment. Yeah, no, I'm just staring off <laughs> in the distance actually. Uh, actually, it's my ring light. I love this thing. It's my pretty light. It's great. Yeah, it looks amazing. Yeah, no, it makes me look beautiful. So anyone can look just amazing in this thing. Yeah, no, I love my ring light. Yeah. I think Nothing I'm going like to have to get vanity. one myself. <laughs> yeah, I should. So do you have a quote that you live by or think of often? You know, uh, one, it's my own. I like to say live with a courageous heart, um, which means the courage it takes to live a life aligned with your values. Um, But I also greatly value Our Deepest Fear by Marianne Williamson. Like it's a paragraph long, but that quote has so many golden nuggets in it. Like it's Mm. just so rich. You know, and the part about it is, you know, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are, you know, more powerful, that we're more powerful beyond measure. You know, that it's our light, not our darkest darkness that frightened us most. And I love the part where it says like, you know, there's nothing of, it does not serve the world for you to play small in order, you know, to, to make people feel less insecure. I love that. Not playing small so yeah. others feel less insecure. I love that. And I'll throw in a third one too is around self-care. The world wants the best of you and not what's left of you. Yes. Perfect. Three out of the park. Amazing quotes. What advice would you give to your 20 year old self? I ask this question selfishly because I'm 21 years old. So I sort of like to just ask my guests and sort of take this in for personal use. So what advice would you give your 20 year old self? Uh, day drinking. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> if it is good or bad, <laughs> good or bad, just, just, just do it. Um, no, uh, the advice I'd give my, my 20, my 21 or 20 year old self is, uh, it's actually, it's more of like an affirmation than it is advice. I just want to tell him he's good enough as is and that he's loved. That's it. I like that. I do like that. Final question of the episode. And it is a morbid way to end the podcast. But I ask this question because I do get a different answer every single time. And it is seriously interesting what people come out with. And it might hit quite close to home with you considering your experiences in the past. And the question is, are you afraid of dying? Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> you know, Well, there's always like this... <laughs> there's always this natural kind of fear of dying because it's like, well, my only fear of dying would be is like leaving my son too early in life. Like my dad died when he was 61, you know, and his dad died when he was 61. I'm not, I don't want to leave my son like that yet. You know, um, that that's more my fear is what it would do for my loved ones, you know? And I know they'd event, they'd just be, they'd be fine without me. People move on in life, but 
I don't want to leave him like that yet, but I can't control that either. I can influence it. But as far as dying goes myself now, like I've got a really strong faith. And so whatever happens, happens after this. But mm. man, I've lived a crazy life so far. It's been very, very rich. And I've experienced some really amazing things along with some stuff that was super challenging. But I'm grateful for every single part of it. Wouldn't change any of it. Serve others. Nah. Like, well, of course I'd change a lot of it. If I could, like, yeah. <laughs> like when people say that, I'm like, are oh, you full of shit? Like, um, obviously I wouldn't want to go through that stuff, but I have an understanding of what it did for me yeah. and why I appreciate it right now. If I didn't have to go through that stuff, that's great. I don't know where I would be right now if I hadn't, but um, I can say though, I appreciate every little bit of it and I'm grateful. Amazing. What a perfect way to end the episode. Yes. Thank you for your time. For the listeners, where can they follow up with you? What have you got going on? Plug away. Plug away. Look, I am a mindset coach. What the hell is a mindset coach? Well, the turn, turn is on trend right now. So that's why I call myself that. Um, the bottom line is I am a coach and I love to serve. Like my primary audience are executives and, and elite performers because I relate to them in so many ways. The burnout, the only value you have in your life is your career. Like I get that. And then the starving nature of like wanting something different in life. Like to, how, do you, how do you take the mask off and live life aligned with your values? Those are my people. I help them overcome their limiting beliefs. I help them rediscover their values, not reinvent themselves, rediscover and get them back on track in life to pursue something that's actually a purpose and meaning um, and creating a legacy. But you can find me on LinkedIn. Look up my name. I got a bajillion emojis next in my headline. You can't miss me. Um, you can find me on Instagram. I'm shifting. It's an interesting topic too for another day. Shifting from my life story coaching business to now my own personal brand of uh, on Instagram. It's I am Matt Gagnon. It's spelled Gagnon. Um, and uh, because most people are now associating my name with my business, not my business name. And mm -hmm. uh, those are probably the two biggest places you can find me right now. Look, you can just call me. I'm ballsy enough to put my number out there. It's 512-541-6561. We're taking calls now. So, Sounds like you're on a radio. Love it. <laughs> I am. Next caller. You have the perfect radio voice. I was thinking about this. But, I mean, the way you speak it is just soothing and people, it's just a nice, this will be a pleasure for people to listen to just because of the way you talk. Because but you I said that. Thank you, thank you so much. But I will say is like, look, I have a pretty funny voicemail. And if, if you call me, at least get to my voicemail because it, it yeah, just, that's just a tip. I'm not going to tell you anything else, <laughs> but my voice, voicemail is pretty damn awesome. So I will leave all of those in the show notes below. So listeners, if you yeah. have forgotten those already, just scroll down and click. But Matt, that is everything I have for you today. And I Ooh. can thank you enough for your time. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of CEO Journals. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast and I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible entrepreneurs every single week. So if you found any value in listening to today's episode, I'd seriously appreciate if you could smash that subscribe button and leave a five star rating and review. It only takes a couple of seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. 
If you want to reach out to me, head over to my Instagram at CEO Journals or send me a connection request on LinkedIn. I'd love to speak to as many of you as possible. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to another incredible guest where we will be discussing their journey and providing some great tips for all you listeners. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and once again, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of CEO Journals.